Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Kyle McLaughlin is our guest. He's being interviewed by Bullseye's producer, Kevin Ferguson. Kyle has had a really interesting career. He broke into showbiz just after college. He was acting in a few local plays, and then, boom, he gets his first ever audition for a part in a movie. Not just any part in a movie, the lead role in Dune, a big-budget, super-anticipated sci-fi drama, and then he got the part. But then the movie didn't do so great. It's a box office flop, the critics didn't like it, and it was from the ruins of Dune that he forged a working relationship with that film's director, David Lynch. He eventually got the lead role in Lynch's Blue Velvet, one of the greatest films of all time. Then in 1989, he was cast as special agent Dale Cooper, the star of Lynch's iconic TV show, Twin Peaks. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. Never seen so many trees in my life. If you name the type of character Kyle plays most often, it's usually a charming, confident guy, sometimes a little goofy, like the mayor on Portlandia or Orson on Desperate Housewives. And it's not far off from his personality in real life. He is charming, confident, and kind of goofy. His latest movie is called Tesla. It's directed by the cult filmmaker Michael Almereda. Tesla tells the story of Nikola Tesla, the inventor and engineer who pioneered the advancement of alternating current electricity, meaning you can thank him for, among other things, this show and whatever electrical thing you're using to listen to it with. It's a weird kind of ethereal movie. Most of the scenes take place in dimly lit rooms. The characters are subdued and haunted. Every now and then they'll break the fourth wall to tell you something about what happens when you search the internet for Tesla's name. Tesla is played by Ethan Hawke. Kyle McLaughlin, our guest, plays Thomas Edison, Tesla's former employer and chief rival. The scene we're about to hear is set at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Tesla and Edison are both there showing off their work, and the two inventors have just sat down at a restaurant to meet. I took the liberty, ordered for us both, an American meal, pie. So you've been to my exhibition, The tower, the Edison column, 18,000 bulbs, literally, surrounded by 2,500 different types of Edison lamps. Go ahead, it's fresh. Well, I'm an American now, full-fledged citizen. Yes, yes, of course you are, of course. As I was saying, everything's on display. Edison dynamos, flat irons, sewing machine motors, dining room fans, elevators. I like the dolls. The dolls? Very amusing. Mm. The talking dolls. We rushed it, and it's not perfect. Kinetoscope. Moving pictures. Everybody will like that. But I invited you. Here you are. Tesla, it's plain as day. This entire world's fair is lit and powered by alternating current. Westinghouse machines, your design. I was wrong about alternating current. I was wrong about you. Kyle McLaughlin, welcome to Bullseye. Uh, Hi, Kevin. How are you? Right after 
that scene, a narrator steps in to tell us that that conversation never happened. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sadly. (laughs) That kind of sets the tone for Tesla. Mm. Like it's not a movie that's necessarily about portraying history exactly as it happened on the record, but like, studying these characters more and getting to more of an emotional truth. Mm. And I guess my first question is, does that inform like your preparation for a film like this? You know, you're not playing, you are playing a real person, but realism, I guess, Mm. isn't necessarily the goal, right? Realism in the portrayal, of course, um, factual as much as we could take from books and there actually are some some film of of edison in his workshop moving from space to space and you could i get to i would watch his physicality but so much of of the work that i that i did for edison and i think ethan as well for tesla was reading what what we knew and then sort of letting it marinate i guess a little bit and trying to create the emotional life, the the mental life, the body of the person as if you were there. So we'd ask what where what am I doing? Why am what am I feeling? Where where are we? Where's my focus? What might I say in this environment, in this situation? And that's where the creation of the character begins is you have you just have to use your imagination and put yourself into that almost put yourself into the skin which i tried to do of edison and understand what drove him and what motivated him and out of that comes i think a better understanding of why he was doing something when he did it so the scene that we just heard where he's talking with tesla as you said, it was a made-up scene, but quite possibly he had Edison had those thoughts, recognized what he was saying, and was able to say them to Tesla. Um, which is the big question: whether he would have even had the not the courage necessarily, but the the ability to admit that um, what had happened was was a failure. There's a scene early on in the film when you as Thomas Edison and Ethan Hawke as Tesla kind of get into an ice cream food fight. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And, you know, as an actor, when you read that from the script, you're like, oh, first of all, it's like, oh, that's going to be really fun. So you're saying it wasn't improvised then? No, it was was (laughs) there. And then you're also wanting to make sure that it that it works in the in the way that it's intended you know which is obviously a, a funny stepping away from the reality for a moment uh, almost uh, a slapstick kind of uh comedic interchange between them showing how both men kind of maintain their composure but at the same time are driven to one up each other in this uh, little comic interlude i guess and the other side is, as an actor, you're like, okay, you recognize that this is really a visual rhythmic gag. And in order for it to work, it has to be played a certain way, very delicately and very seriously. It's one of the great things of working with Ethan 
he understands that as well. There was no explanation necessary, really. And we both re recognized what we needed to do to make the scene work. And as an actor, that's just that's part of the fun of of the play that goes on when you're in front of the camera. You grew up in uh, Yakima, Washington, right? Mm -hmm. I did. I've never been there. Uh, tell me about it. <laughs> it is a, a larger town or almost a small city uh, located in the central part of Washington state, the southern central part of Washington state. It's uh, considered to be on the east side. There's a range of mountains called the Cascades that separate the west side, which is the the green side, let's say Seattle and the Tacoma and, and Bellingham and all those cities over there, the Olympic National Forest, and then the Cascade Mountains. And then on the west, uh, on the east side, you have um, smaller towns and it's the farming region. It's there, everything grows there. There's, there's huge uh, ranches, orchard ranches, fruit trees and uh, wheat fields. And uh, it's um, very little moisture. And it's where I come came actually when i started to make wine i have a wine business that's where i started and uh in 2005 it turns out it's an excellent region for growing grapes as well because as i said you can control the moisture the growing up part was i would say fairly average you know uh grew up with two brothers um uh, you know, stay-at-home mom for the most part. Uh, father was worked as a as a stockbroker. He just had kind of an idyllic little childhood, really, uh, running around on our, on our bikes, shooting BB guns, and, uh, <laughs> and and then found my way to Seattle to go to school at the University of Washington. So I spent the first you know twenty plus years really in Washington State. When did you realize that acting was something you could do as a career? Ah, wasn't until I was a little older. I say that, and I I actually don't really think I had a realization that I could have a career. I knew that I, <laughs> I knew I was pretty good at it in high school, and that continued into college. But it wasn't something that I was actually studying, or, or let's say I intended to study in college. College was meant to be um, the time when you got serious about your life and your career, and you had to find something professional to do. The trouble was I wasn't really good at anything else except for acting. So uh, that's kind of where I landed. And I was happiest there. And I love the creative process. And I was lucky because when I went to school at the University of Washington uh, with no intention to study acting, turns out there was actually a really, really good training program there, a three-year repertory theater training program. And... I noticed it immediately and was driven to audition and got accepted into this program. So 13 people were accepted into this three-year acting program, and I was one of them. And so I really went through very rigorous training and came out the other side and immediately went to work. I started working at the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, and I think probably about that time I realized I, I could maybe make a living. I don't think I thought of it as a career, but I thought, well, I... I can make enough money to survive. My parents don't seem to mind. They don't, they're happy that I'm making money and not asking them for money. <laughs> and I loved it. And so I just let my passion and naivete actually carry me forward. So your first ever role on screen was Dune, is that right? Yes, I'd never been in front of the camera before. As I watched the movie, I can certainly see that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm a pretty harsh critic of myself, but um well that's one of the things I was wondering is that like first off that was also your first ever audition for something on screen too, right? Yes. So you get it in one. It's a not a small indie flick. It's a major motion picture and I guess you have to I'm not an actor, but I know that being in frame is a lot more important on a movie set than it is on the stage. There are marks. Did you know anything about that or like what was the learning curve, I guess? Well, it was um complete. I I had no idea about marks as you said or different lenses or continuity. I had a wonderfully patient mentor in David Lynch. So I started out of the gate. I was, you know, I uh, I was a few steps ahead just because of his help. I also was a huge fan of the books from when I was 15. I mean, I knew the books backward and forward. The book, I should say, just Dune, backwards and forwards. Although Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, I was pretty familiar with too. So I was a huge fan. And it was sort of strange that somehow I ended up in the role, I thought. Um, <laughs> although Stephen Colbert also said he was a huge fan of Dune and felt he could have done a very good Paul as well. So <laughs> we can have a Paul off now, especially with, with Timothy now involved with the new one. I'm trying to figure out figure it out as I went. And I, I we weren't allowed to watch the footage, the dailies, they called them, or the footage as, it, as they would come back. So I, I was really working in a vacuum. I had no idea. And that was intentional on David's part. He didn't want anyone to see anyone to watch their performance because um, he doesn't. He didn't want anyone to sort of subtly start to change and shift things. Um, but I remember it being just an extraordinary time, an amazing experience. You can imagine being. I say I wasn't plucked from relative obscurity. I was plucked from complete obscurity, and I found myself in Mexico City, working with extraordinary actors, one of whom I had just seen a few months before in Dust Boat, and he turned out to play my father, Jürgen Prochnow. So you can imagine as I'm in school watching this movie, Dust Boat, and then suddenly I'm acting alongside the man who I was you know, completely admiring as the captain. That was, it was very strange. Yeah. Dune didn't do great in the box office, the critics didn't receive it really well either. And I wonder like what lessons that taught you and what you did to cope with that. Cause I, you know, that's gotta be really tough, right? It somehow didn't have that much of an impact on me. I certainly changed uh, what I needed to do, but we filmed Dune and then I had a contractually, I was not able to do anything else until the movie actually came out in theaters. So I had about a year and a half to just kind of mess around. So I went back and did a play and I traveled a little bit. I did not come to Los Angeles. I just, because part of the situation was that I had five Dune pictures that I was obligated to do according to the contract. So I was signed up for the next Dune and the next Dune and all that. And so we were just going to kind of roll right through it. I'm kind of a bit like Harry Potter, I would imagine. So when the when the word came out, and I wasn't even really conscious of box off and what was happening. I was kind of enjoying my life back up in Seattle and figured we'd just get to work on the next one when we did. And then when I got a call from my agent saying, 
<laughs> well, it looks like they're not going to go forward with the Dune pictures. And then, by the way, the first one didn't do so well. Um, you better come down to Los Angeles. I was like, okay. So I hopped in my Jeep and packed up and drove down, a bit like the Beverly Hillbillies, I guess, and uh, <laughs> came into Los Angeles and I found a place and started from the beginning. I had I had an agent, which was great, and, and I had some of the trappings that come with that, but um, no prospects. So I started uh, started back again and um, didn't fare well, um, actually very well, until David Lynch reached out to me to do Blue Velvet, which was an amazing thing for him to do because, I mean, although we worked together and were friends and we had a great time, he could easily have said, you know what, you, you didn't open this movie and... Uh, you know, so I'm not going to hire you again. But he felt that I was the right character or the right person to play the role of Jeffrey Beaumont in Blue Velvet, and that's how we how we moved. And Blue Velvet, we started. Um, it was about two years from the wrap of Dune until the we started working on um, on Blue Velvet. If it's all right with you, I'd like to play a clip from Twin Peaks. Yes, this is the scene that I think the first time I watched. Twin Peaks. I'm 34 now. I was like 20. This is the scene where you playing special agent Dale Cooper, of course, and mm -hmm. um, you're in a diner, the double R diner with Sheriff Truman and uh, Sheriff Truman is in a bit of a rush and you give him some timeless advice. Harry, <laughs> I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Every day, once a day, give yourself a present. Don't plan it. Don't wait for it. Just let it happen. Could be a new shirt at the men's store, a cat nap in your office chair, or two cups of good, hot, black coffee. Like this. A present. Like Christmas. That's nice to hear Mike Allen Keane's voice. Yeah. When you first heard about Twin Peaks, was the pitch like this will be a cop show and by like two or three episodes in, you're going to have a dream where everybody's talking backwards <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to put it on ABC. Was it like that? that was yeah, that was exactly the pitch, Kevin. That was exactly <laughs> what they said. And Bob Iger is going to be a big fan. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. It was, um, I mean, it was really interesting. The first script, Northwest Passage, is what it was originally called before they changed the title. And I think initially, I, I know that David was always very keen on me playing Agent Cooper. And Mark Frost, who was co-creator, wanted to meet me. And so he and I sat down and had a conversation and he was comfortable with me after that. And, uh, and I really like Mark. Um, he's terrific. Um, and the idea was we were going to make, uh, David Lynch was going to direct something for television. And that I think more than anything was what we, we all wanted to experience, to see, to experience that because mm. it was such a, at that time, such an unusual, unexpected thing for him to do. And the idea that David Lynch was going to be able to beam his vision, and I should say David and Mark because they created it together, 
but he was going to be able to beam this into people's homes, just your average person around the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was just too, too compelling to ignore. And so we all signed on, everybody joined in. Um, we all had to sign, of course, the contracts for five and a half years. And you're going to do all these, you know, they, they own you. Not one of us, I think, ever felt that it was going to go beyond just the one episode, which they call it, which is called a backdoor pilot, meaning that they film a two-hour, what's basically a movie of the week. That's what you called them then, um, with the option to transform it and, and turn it into a pilot for a series, potential series. And I think we just kind of went into it and we shot it in 20 plus days at 21, 24, something like that. A two hour, you know, movie of the week. we had a great time up in Seattle. I loved the character. I borrowed so much from David. A lot of the vernacular were, were, were you know, just the rhythms and the pacing were things that I could hear David saying. Um, I'm listening to the pitch of my voice from what you played. It's much higher and much younger. Yeah. Uh, I, I was about was, to mention that too. Yeah. It was like, Harry, he was very much like up here. And so, you know, I was, I don't know, I was in my late 20s, I guess. And I think people were not certain that he really was from the FBI because he seemed kind of young and sort of naive. And and uh, so uh, anyway, um, <laughs> but it was really, a, it was an amazing experience. And I, and I figured that, I think we all felt that it was just going to kind of be one and done. And turns around ABC kind of fell in, love, fell in love with it and they optioned more episodes uh, and we shot all of those before anything ever went on to television. So we finished the first six, six or seven, seven, I think, uh, roughly seven or eight shows and they held them and then they did a, a mid-season release mm -hmm. and that everything went crazy from there. It's funny because like I think – you're basically playing this like very like J Edgar Hoover fifties G man role. Yeah. And just being like, kind of as if that person were teleported to, you know, 1989. Is that right? Yeah. 89. Yeah. Yeah. He was, you know, he had, he had so many layers, um, this character, uh, but I love that at his core, he was, you know, a moral guy. He had tremendous empathy. He had a sense of humor, very dry, that he really related to people, even though he himself was sort was very quirky and of course had passions that were wonderful and unexpected and kind of off the wall, you know, coffee and cherry pie. Yeah. But you just felt, I think, um, comfortable with him and comforted by him, you know, like things are going to be okay because Dale Cooper is on the case, you know, and <laughs> I, I love that. I, I loved, you know, living in that world. We'll wrap up with Kyle McLaughlin after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Schmanners. Noun. Definition. Rules of etiquette designed not to judge others, but rather to guide ourselves through everyday social situations. 
Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. Every week on Schmanners, we take a look at a topic that has to do with society or manners. We talk about the history of it. We take a look at how it applies to everyday life. And we take some of your questions. And sometimes we do a biography about a really cool person that had an impact on how we view etiquette. So join us every Friday and listen to Schmanners on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? Our Up First team goes to work while you're sleeping. That way you wake up to the freshest take on the day's news. It's the 10-minute morning news podcast from NPR. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Kyle McLaughlin. He, of course, played Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return. He has a new movie. It's called Tesla. In it, he plays Thomas Edison, the rival and antagonist to Ethan Hawke's Nikola Tesla. It's out now on demand. Let's get back into Kyle's conversation with our producer, Kevin Ferguson. Okay, do you mind if we play something from Sex in the City now? Just, oh, of course. Just tone shift? Yeah, totally. That's the story of my career. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in Sex in the City, my guest, Kyle McLaughlin, plays Trey McDougal. Mm. He is the love interest and eventually marries Charlotte. And Charlotte's, of course, played by Kristen Davis on Sex and the City. And after they marry, you know, and as in, in I'll say it in as NPR friendly terms as I can, but they have an intimacy problem. Mm-hmm. That's very good. It's very NPR on that. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, intimacy problem, you know, drives a wedge. Also, Trey has boundary issues with his mom. That's beside the point here. Mm. In this scene, Trey is working on his tennis serve to distract himself a little bit after Charlotte went ahead and kissed the gardener. It's the middle of the night and, you know, you are drenched in sweat and looking kind of jacked, if I'll be honest. (laughs) It's amazing what... um Two things. A, the, the fear of being shirtless in the scene will, will make you do and in terms of visiting the gym and <laughs> the copious amounts of baby oil that the, that the makeup gals were putting on me quite happily. And I was like, I think, I think this is too much. And they're like, no, no. And, they kept putting <laughs> this on. and I was like, I, I, okay, if you think so, you know, <laughs> well, let's take a listen. Trey, stop. You're upset, and what I did was so wrong, and I'm I'm sorry. Uh, What can I say? I'm apparently unable to meet your needs, so from time to time, as much as I detest it, I guess I'm just gonna have to look the other way. I don't want a husband who looks the other way. I want a husband who takes me in his arms and makes me not want to kiss the gardener. Charlotte, no marriage is perfect. And so much of what we have is wonderful. We can have separate lives and still be together. <laughs> totally acceptable. Aw. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had Sarah Jessica Parker on the show a few years ago. And when we talked with her about sex in the city, she told us, like, you know, she still mostly lives in New York. And there are just simply some places that she can't go now. Mm. Like, you know, mostly on the Upper West Side, the Magnolia mm. Bakery and all that. 
Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm wondering if that kind of thing happens with you. Like, you know, if you're walking down the street on, you know, in Manhattan, do people stop you? And if so, are they more likely to recognize you from Twin Peaks or from a show like this? Well, first of all, I'm happy to say I can go to the Magnolia Bakery and do when I'm in New York City because they have a very nice <laughs> banana pudding. Oh my God, the banana pudding and the cupcakes. I'm I'm afraid I'm I'm a simple man with simple needs. Uh, <laughs> but those cupcakes are amazing. Anyway, I think to a much lesser degree than what Sarah Jessica experiences. I um you know, as I've gotten older, my hair I've, hair's gone white and I, you know, usually wear glasses and being recognized is uh is it doesn't happen that much. When it does, it's it's a little bit dependent really on where I am. If I'm in New York, there's a good chance it will be something from Sex and the City because it's such a beloved show there. Although Twin Peaks is also, you know, something that people will recognize me for. And, you know, by and large, people don't, they don't approach, they don't come up and make a big thing, but they might, if I'm sitting somewhere, I might suddenly see a cup of coffee appear on my right hand and the waiter will say, oh, <laughs> that person that would eyes and I sort of nod and give him a thumbs up. It's very, it's very sweet. People are, <laughs> people are very uh, kind, you know, for the most part to um, not interfere or, or get in your way, but they do want to acknowledge that, which I, I love. And really, I think on, on social media is where, um, because I, I do support Twin Peaks. I do have little posts and things that I do from time to time, and people seem to really get a kick out of them. You know, it's I've been with out with actors, other actors that are very well known, and 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 I I watch kind of what happens to them when they get into the the crosshairs of a fan, and it's it's frightening. It's I'm grateful that that that. I don't have to deal with that, but there's something that, that overtakes people sometimes, and it's it's inexplicable. Really, they they sort of lose themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say that when I met Jimmy Page, um, Led Zeppelin, I, I probably was that fan. I probably had exactly <laughs> the same. I, I just I was like, oh my god. So I appreciate it, and I I empathize um, with with that kind of reaction. But fortunately, uh, uh, I haven't. I haven't really had to deal with it. So a little while ago, my wife and I got a uh, one of those robot vacuums. That uh, you know, I'm avoiding saying the brand name. Okay, and do they work? Is it something I should? <laughs> um, if you have cats and ah. shedding's a problem, uh, ah. it does an excellent job. I'll say that. Okay, good to know. Um, and when you set it up, they ask you to give it a name and we thought about it for a little bit and we ended up going with Dougie. <laughs> Perfect name. <laughs> because the, the thing just kind of mindlessly ambles about the living room and bumps into walls as it's trying to clean. Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> um, Dougie, of course, being Dougie Jones, one of the, I think, four characters you played on the return of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I will be honest. It makes me a little mad when I'm talking about your performance in that and more people don't recognize how great it was. It, oh, thank you. I can't imagine what kind of a challenge that was playing 
you know, these three or four or however many different characters and just, you know, you, you really sell it. Thank you. Thank you. Kev. I, I had such a good time with them. I was, you know, challenged, of course. I think with Dougie, uh, I just had to have more courage in the stillness and the really just not doing anything. <laughs> and yeah. I, that's as a, for an, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty still as an actor, but this was asking a lot, but I, I remember Peter Sellers and being there and I, you know, I've, what a movie that I still think is just brilliant. And I said, no, I think, I think it's worked. And I also had, again, David Lynch was there whenever I would say to him, David, is this taking too long? He said, no, no, longer, longer. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay, I'll do it. You know, I mean, when, when I remember every day there were challenges and really fun challenges about how to go through a scene or a situation with no prior knowledge or understanding of it before. So you're like a baby in a grown man's body. You have no idea how things work or what things are for or what those sounds are. I mean, you are a child. It's a baby. It's a baby. You're just reacting, you know, and trying to do it without indicating. And the complete opposite was Mr. C, where I had to be incredibly frightening. And I'll follow up on that contact of mine. Hopefully get the information you need. Want, not need. I don't need anything, right? If there's one thing you should know about me, Ray, it's that I don't need anything. I want. And I want that information. And that, again, you know, uh, one of those things where the stillness that comes out of him and the menace that is there, uh, not something, it's my stock and trade, but I also believe in myself as an actor. And I think, you know, you can do just about anything if you do the work. <laughs> so I... Uh, I did, and I th and I was really happy with the way it turned out, and um, it was a a joy to er to go to work every day, um, even getting up at four in the morning and you know driving to. I mean, just every morning, I said, "I am very lucky. I get to work with one of my favorite people in the world, David Lynch, on and one of the my favorite shows ever, Twin Peaks." Yeah, and I I embraced it. I really embraced it, and. Uh, and recognized while I was in it how lucky I was. Yeah, that's really nicely said. Thank you. My takeaway when I watched The Return was that I, I, I felt like that show talked a lot about nostalgia and how we kind of fetishize the past a little bit mm. with shows like this. You mm. know, I think a lot of folks, when that show debuted the Twin Peaks return. We're expecting you to be all thumbs up and coffee and cherry pie. Mm. And you know, the past has a lot of trauma and a lot of dark stuff. And I think the show kind of envelops that really well. You know, Cooper was traumatized for over a quarter of a century. Mm. 
while in between those two things. Did that, did that cross your mind or did that make the show or did that make the role more interesting to you when you were reading the script? Yeah, it was definitely, um, have to recognize and acknowledge the passage of time. And to be honest, I, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm older. I've gone through a lot. I'm just going to trust that, you know, whatever those experiences and battle scars and whatever they are, are, are on me. And, and that will be what's going to come out when we finally do get back to Cooper. So I didn't feel like I needed to really sort of dredge up some some you know dark things. I figured you know I've had 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 experiences and been knocked around a bit, so that's going to be there. And I remember just being really excited. A, I could still fit in the suit. That was <laughs> very nice. <laughs> I was a little traumatized by the darkness of my hair and the pallor of my skin. To be honest, that seemed a little <laughs> extreme. <laughs> um, but um, it was really really satisfying when he finally emerged i hope i don't want to give away too much but if people haven't seen it but he emerges and uh, a certain point and um and that it felt right and it felt appropriate for the time and the distance you know and again i point to david uh you know for for making that happen for creating that and kind of the open arm embrace that I felt when Cooper woke up and stepped out of that hospital room. Kyle, I'd like to ask you about wine before we go. I'm here to help you with wine. Yes. You've run a successful wine label for over, for about 15 years now, right? I have. Yeah. It's called pursued by bear. When did you realize that wine was something special to you? It was, um, when I was in high school, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, I, um, you know, it, it was a something that made me feel grown up. But I, and I will say, when I, when I was, uh, yeah, when I was, I guess, a seventeen, eighteen, um, I was not a beer drinker, and my girlfriend at the time, we would have tell the story that she would have. We would have dinner at her house occasionally with her family and her parents and everybody, and everyone was allowed to have a little, a little glass of wine with the meal. And I remember feeling very sophisticated and grown up and special. And the wine was actually pretty good. And so that became kind of my thing. So when I went to college, again, beer wasn't really the thing I chose. Um, of course, realized the error of my ways, and that that's all taken care of. But <laughs> it was really wine. So I was kind of the wine guy, you know, even though I had no sophistication and no understanding at all. But it was a way to sort of, you know, stand out, I guess, or, you know, be a little bit different. And it turned into something that uh, my relationship with David Lynch, we, he sent me a bottle of the uh, Lynch Baj after my first screen test uh, as kind of a surprise thank you and he, David and I discussed wine when we when I met him and so kind of, it just was this thing that kind of kept rolling around in my life and through a series of interesting meetings with people that were involved in the business and Colgan being one Colgan Sellers and Napa and then 
meeting some folks in Washington that were in Washington state that were doing wine. I, I, I put together this idea that I, maybe I might be able to, you know, do some small fun hobby adventure thing where I made wine. And it was really no, nothing more uh, thought out than that. And that's what started me on the road in 2005 with this Cabernet called Pursued by Bear, made in Washington State. And it was one of those kind of fun things to do that also accomplished something in my life, which was spending more time with my dad. And it was something I recognized I wasn't doing. And this was uh, a way that we could... It brought me home back to Yakima, and then it was something that we could do together. We could go down and go wine tasting, and in, you know, check out this place and that place, and go look at this vineyard. And my dad was sort of a gentleman farmer, even though he was a stockbroker as well. And uh, it, it really appealed to him, and it was something that we could do together. In my relationship with my dad, there, there needed to be some some activity that was going on for us to like hang out together. So whether it was gardening or it was playing golf or uh, you know tasting wine. Um, there was always an activity that needed to be, that needed to happen. <laughs> when is it too late to have coffee? Never. <laughs> really? <laughs> I have coffee. I drink coffee all day. My coffee cutoff time is three. Three o'clock? I had iced coffee at 3.30 on Monday, mm. and I was tossing and turning. I'm, oh. I'm such a baby. <laughs> Do you like a dark roast or a medium roast? I'm going to give a shout out to Tristero Coffee, which mm -hmm. is a local coffee shop in LA that delivers. Um, this guy named Greg comes by and drops off two bags of coffee to us. And he does definitely lighter roasts, I would say. Mm. Like, I would say medium to light and usually medium light. To light. Okay. So yeah. you like more of a citrus bright um, quality? I, I do. But also, I like coffee from Latin America that have more of that chocolatiness too. Mm. Good. I, um, if I understand correctly, the darker the roast, the less caffeine. Yeah, that's true. Uh, which, and I, I am a more of a dark roast person. And I'll give a shout out to the Walla Walla Roastery, which is up in Walla Walla, <laughs> and they actually have a blend that they made with me called. Um, it's called Brown Bear, and it's Melange, which was an homage, of course, to Dune, because the roaster, Thomas Reese, is a big Dune fan. Oh, yeah. Um, and it has, the, it has the same label as my wine, the Pursued by Bear wine, but it's uh, on, on the coffee bag, and it's pretty tasty. Um, but I think it's probably the caffeine. So they, you know, most of the caffeine is taken out or burned off, I think, when they heat it up. And I like a real dark roast or, or a, even espresso um, at night. Um, but it could simply be the fact that I drink so much coffee, I'm immune. <laughs> <I've> <laughs> built, it could be that simple. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if people are buying you cups at, you know, the local restaurant or something, that's got to build mm -hmm. up. Exactly right. Um, well, we're just about out of time. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. This was such a pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Kyle McLaughlin, Tesla. His latest movie is streaming now. Kyle also runs his own winery. It's called Pursued by Bear. 
which you can check out online. He also has one of the most entertaining presences on social media. If you're a fan of anything he's been in and could use some cheering up, maybe give him a follow. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where just the other day, I went on to weatherunderground.com to check what the weather forecast for the next day was. And it said, tomorrow is forecast to be much cooler than today. And the forecast for tomorrow was 96, high of 96, much cooler. 96. That's where we're at here in Los Angeles. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use it. You can keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.